A very warm welcome to the Change Conversations podcast, where we help individuals to reignite the spark to look at their lives and careers with a different lens. Our interactions interrogate different individuals of all backgrounds who seek to be equipped for change in their careers and personal goals. I am your host, Mbumengu Betaga, and I look forward to bringing you impactful change conversations. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Um, this week, we've got a very interesting guest who is also a career coach, and he'll be sharing some very exciting um, tips that I think we all need, um, mainly around salary negotiation. And um, he is going to introduce himself. But for anybody who's finding us for the first time, please do follow us, subscribe, share, like do everything that people do on social media and let us know what you think of our conversation. Mohamed, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for making the time. And I am so glad that um, the social media now and I'm meeting um, people from globally, internationally, and, uh, and, and it's, it's an amazing space to be at. Really is, really is the power of social media. We can, we can speak from other sides of the world and have a wonderful conversation. So, yeah, what a blessing it is. It is, definitely. So, Mohammed, please introduce yourself. Yes, yes, I'm, I'm Mohammed. Um, there's two parts to what I do. I'm the owner and founder of MK Career Solutions, a business that provides uh, done-for-you career coaching and consulting services, including CV writing, cover letter writing, LinkedIn optimization, and interview training. Uh, and personally, I also work as a career coach and help people make ambitious transitions, whether it's from a job into a completely new job. Sometimes it's a job to a business. And, and more recently as well, it's individuals who started businesses now want to go back into the world of corporate as well. So I love what I do. It truly feels like a vocation rather than a job. And uh, I love talking about these ideas. Hopefully, we can share many of today. Great. So, so tell us briefly how you look very young. So, how did you end up? Um, tell us briefly about your career journey. Sure thing. Sure thing. I I, I went into university um, fully fully expecting to become a chemist and go into the world of drug discovery and perhaps find a new cure for a really rare disease or something really fascinating. But very, very early on, although I love the topic of chemistry, um, I found that the work prospects probably wouldn't be to my liking. I'm quite a people-focused person, uh, and I wanted something that was a lot more people-focused, but chemistry is very much kind of individualistic to the most part. Um, I could see a lot of potential for automation to take over a lot of the jobs in the future. Um, it wasn't really for me. So uh, when I did finish my university and having done some work in between, um, there was two options of which could have chosen. Uh, one was the education route, because I love teaching and helping people. And the other route was sales. And, and at the time, because I was soon to get married uh, and the money was a driving factor, I decided to take the sales route. And, and I had a wonderful career working initially for a really small company called Timesco and then moving on to a medical company called Smith & Nephew, which is one of the biggest in the world. I had a great time uh, working there, really fascinating role and enjoying all the perks of medical sales, including a wonderful car, nice salary, bonuses were good lunch allowance, private healthcare, which, which is quite rare in the UK, um, and so many other wonderful perks. 
But it got to a point where I came to realize that no more amount of money than I was earning was necessarily going to make me any happier. Sure, it would reduce my money problems, but that doesn't equate to any greater life satisfaction. And so I was already career advising and writing CVs and resumes just for fun. And as I was in this corporate role, I started doing more of it side by side alongside my role up until a point where the results that I was getting and the satisfaction I was feeling from, from doing that career work was far greater than it was my corporate role. And it was at that point that I decided to step away, focus fully on my business and my coaching and, and haven't looked back since. Oh, wow. That's, a, that's an amazing story. And, and I think that fulfillment that, that you get and that satisfaction um, to me, just it's something that you can't trade for anything, right? Completely. I think when when money is tight, then of course more money will bring us a level of satisfaction. But once we have pretty much the baseline level of food, you know, a comfortable house to live in, a bit of a buffer zone every month, and so on and so forth, then more money isn't necessarily going to have a correlated impact on, on how happy we are. We might have better holidays or better cars or better houses, but that doesn't necessarily increase our long-term day-to-day fulfillment. Whereas doing something that we're excited about, doing something that perhaps allows us to bring our value into the world and benefit other people in any way, brings a level of fulfillment that money cannot. And, and I think not just myself, but a lot of the clients that I work with kind of get to that point where they realize that and others don't. And unfortunately, others that don't perhaps <laughs> do have a retaining dissatisfaction that remains for a long time. Well, the ones who do find the level of fulfillment they never even knew was possible before. Yeah, but you mentioned that some um, you're also working with people that are thinking of going back into corporate. What are the main reasons for that? Quite interesting because as COVID happened, we've heard a lot about the great resignation and Mm. so on and so forth. And a lot of people were in jobs that they didn't like and wanted to do something they were really passionate about. And COVID provided a platform where a lot of people were on furlough or even out of work and time for people to really evaluate and think about these things for themselves. On the back of that, a lot of people started businesses, e-commerce businesses, service-based businesses, product products, and so on and so forth. And what they found initially was it was great. The excitement of doing something new was wonderful. The part of the business where they were doing what they loved, whether it was creating something or selling something or providing a service was wonderful. But over time, I found that a lot of people have found challenging is the business of running a business, the finances, the admin, the sales and marketing. And what they found is having to work on all of those things has reduced the satisfaction they have because all of those elements that are not about doing the part of the business they love um, become more overbearing and overconsuming. And in the long run, it doesn't become tangible anymore. And a lot of people have realized that, ah, I've tried this freedom. I've liked it. I've dabbled in something. But I'd much rather have the security and the stability that a full-time job brings. And maybe I will just keep this business as a side hustle rather than my main thing. And And that's a reason that a lot of people have gone back into corporate roles. Wow. That's an interesting one because, yeah, getting into entrepreneurship has got a different, it's a different mindset and you end up having to be the jack of all trades <laughs> and be the, the marketing person, the salesperson, the admin person and, and everything else that comes with it, mainly when you're starting off. And, and that might, sometimes it does take its toll. And yeah, I can, I can relate to that. There's no IT department to call when your laptop is is acting up, you know, mm. you need to find a way to fix it. So true, so true. And, and, and it can be quite a challenge 
can be quite a challenge, um, especially when we're starting off and we don't have the money to invest in professionals or services or get some retained contracts to help us with those things. Yeah. Can be a challenge, and and for some people, it's just it's just not worth the extra energy that it consumes, or the financial strain, or the time strain put in the short term, because. The common conception is um, all business owners have tons of free time. They can take days off when they want. Um, but the reality is quite different, especially when we begin, because in order to create the traction and the momentum and the sustainability for a longer term business, we do in the short term have to work longer hours and put more time in. That does take away from family and social time. And of course, a lot of individuals who stick out long enough can see the results, but it does take a lot of short term sacrifice. And for some people, it's just not worth it. And that's completely fine, too. Yeah, no, it is completely fine because at the end of the day, you must um, choose what it is that you want for your life. And and either way, you've tried it out and you've gotten a sense of whether this is what you want or not. And and yeah, and you if you've got the opportunity to move back into corporate, I think it, it becomes a wise idea, to be honest. So yeah, but today we are talking about salary negotiations. Mohammed, this for me is, is one topic that I'm really quite excited about. And, and I'll tell you where my excitement comes in. It's because I see a lot of clients, mainly females, that have battled with salary negotiations. And I have to say, I was one of those where um, I would go in, up, um, interview for a role, and then get told this is the salary, and I'll be like, oh, thank you very much, as if somebody's doing me a favor. And I wouldn't even engage much with whether I should be getting more or getting less. Like, the number was the number, and it, it seemed like it was okay with that. So, so define for me what we mean when we're talking about salary negotiations. Salary negotiation, I think for me, it's about increasing baseline level of remuneration um, compared to what was on the job description or compared to what the first offer was when you were successful with the interview. I think that's it in its most fundamental form. Okay. And, and, and this topic, you seem, it's one topic that you suggested to me. Um, why is it important to you? What surprised me when I first started my journey in career coaching and helping clients with interviews especially individuals who had had five, seven, 10 plus years of experience, was how often people took the first offer and how often people did not even think to negotiate. When for someone like myself coming from a sales background, that was completely alarming and alien to me. If you don't ask, you don't get. And there's a strong likelihood that if conducted in the right way, there is a massive, massive chance that you can at least get some sort of increase in compensation or benefits uh, than what you were initially proposed. These things are a negotiation at the end of the day. Um, companies are trying to get their money's worth. Companies are cost, con cost con conscious as well, a bit of a tongue twister there. Um, but at the same time, we as individuals, as job seekers, as candidates, we have a value, we have a price, and there's always leeway and leverage um, to be able to increase and work on that if done in the right way. Wow. And, and I like the fact that you reminded us, if you don't ask, you don't get. And the only thing that you, they can say to you is, no, this is our final offer. You take it or you leave it, right? Exactly. There's, there's, there's nothing that can really go wrong if done correctly, as long as we're not making um, 
you know, very serious take it or leave it based suggestions, as long as we're not being rude, as long as we're not being assertive, the worst they can say is no, it's not going to take away from, from the job being accepted or being offered to you or not. So, so the, yeah. the best thing you can do is, is actually negotiate. So you, you keep saying is as long as it's done right. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about what does doing it right look like? What does that mean? Completely. So I guess the easiest way to begin is through the interview process, starting with an initial recruiter conversation or the HR conversation all the way until the end. Keep tight-lipped about what your proposed salary expectation is. So, for example, the common question asked by recruiters or HR is, um, what are your salary expectations or what is your current salary? The easy thing to do is to just disclose that salary um, very innocently. But what that does is reduce any leverage or bargaining position or power that one has. Whereas a better way to approach it would be to keep very tight-lipped and say something like, with the greatest respect, um, I'd rather not disclose my salary. I want my compensation um, for this position to be based purely on the value that the company think I can provide uh, and not on any previous remuneration that I've received or any version of that. Now, what that does is mean that you have a bit of leverage and a bit of power because it may well be that you, the, the job is offering 50,000 and you're, you're saying your expectations are 42. Now, if, if, they, if you tell them your expectations are 42, why in their right minds would they even offer you 50? <laughs> it just wouldn't work. Yeah. So, so the best thing to do is to keep tight-lipped about it so that when it gets to a position where the negotiation happens, you put yourself in the best possible position to receive the highest band of the salary possible. That's number one, and that's one of the most fundamental elements. And so when is the best time to negotiate the salary? The best time and the most leverage is obtained once an offer is made. Let's say we go through the interview process and we do a tremendous job of showing our value, showing our worth, leaving the boardroom and the managers looking at each other thinking, we need to employ him or her. This is it. Um, Whatever we need to do, forget everyone else. This is the best. Then we have a position of power and they make an offer. Um, And this is the time to start negotiating. And typically for a lot of clients I work with, it's quite common practice to decline the first and sometimes even the second offer that arises. So, for example, let's say the job is offering um, £45,000, for example. It could yeah. be as simple as saying, thank you so much. I'm so flattered that you'd make this offer to me. I have to be honest with you, though. In line with my expectations and some of the other conversations that I'm having, I was expecting a salary um, that was close to the £50,000 mark. Um, if an offer was to be made, let's say for £50,000, I would have no hesitation in signing the contract today and accepting my offer, not just verbally, but physically as well. And then remaining silent and seeing what comes up. If that's well within the range, um, they may well say yes, but quite often what is common practice is they will say, mm, I'm not sure about that. There might be a bit of ming and ahhing. And then the conversation will conclude and that, that engagement or interaction will happen with another phone call or over email as well. Second time that arises, then it's a question of how good that offer is, because you may have an offer that's close enough to 50, let's say 48, for example. Now, in reality, the difference between 48 and 50 after tax (laughs) is not great. So you may feel that it's there. Or someone might have a real personal connection to the number 50, whatever that number may be. And that may be the time for a second round of negotiation. 
And again, it can be the same. And very, being very polite, being very objective and not giving anything away either way, something along the lines of, thank you. I'm, I'm really grateful that you've come back with another, another offer. But again, my expectation was 50. Now, I am conscious of your time and I am conscious of the other decisions that I have to give regarding other interviews that I've had. So if by the end of this week or the start of next week, you were able to make enough 50, I'd have no hesitation in accepting. Otherwise, I may have to consider the other opportunities available to me. That can be another place to leave the second one and then see what they come back with. Now, typically after the second one, majority of the time, the offer they give you is often the best offer they can give. So that's when most of my clients and when most people individual will take the offer. Or if they're firm and they want to go for the uh, for the stick um, rather than for the twist rather than the stick, then it can be a case of saying, I'm sorry, I'm going to have to decline and see where that goes. Now, of course, if the decline does happen, you have to be from a place of accepting that you might decline and they may formally accept that and that offer is gone. <laughs> but that is the typical framework and strategy that I tend to recommend and it does tend to work quite well if those follows. But Mohammed, what if you don't have any other interviews going? This is where leverage plays a big part. And this is why I advise my clients well before we get into that is to be in a position where you have the capability to secure multiple roles or have multiple roles going concurrently. And I know this isn't the topic of a conversation, but this is where a really good CV or a resume, a covering letter and a LinkedIn comes into play so that you have multiple opportunities so that you are never in a position where all of your chips will be stacked on one job because you do lose a lot of negotiation power or leverage in the process as well. It's a lot easier to manage this when you've got nothing to lose. The people who have the most to lose are the weakest in negotiating power. The people who have the most uh, to gain, it doesn't really matter, to be honest. With you. So, yeah. So this is so, why it's always good to have multiple conversations and have multiple opportunities on the go. So let's play it out, though. You, do, you only have this offer on the table, and this is the only role that you've been negotiating around. Um, do you still employ the same strategy, or what words do you use um, that might help you with the negotiation? It's a lot more difficult, admittedly, because you have a lot to lose by not accepting the offer. But... A more passive version of that would equally work. Maybe along the lines of, you know what, that's a, that's, that's a fantastic offer, but it isn't in line with the expectations. I'd be more appreciative of, of your offer in the £50,000 range. Is that something that you would be open to? Mm. Or, for mm. example, you know, I'm, I'm really flattered that you've, you've, you made me an offer, but if I'm being really honest, I don't feel like it's a true reflection of my value. From the research that I've done by speaking to people in the industry, by using Glassdoor.com and other online sources, I know that the industry average is close to £50,000. And I don't think I'd be doing myself a disservice by requesting uh, compensation in that range. How do you feel about this? <laughs> in, in an instances where we have less negotiating power, or we don't really have the opportunity to work or walk away. It's much better to get into a conversation and a dialogue about that. But again... Yeah about being firm but not being over the top because you don't want to talk yourself out of any opportunities that may occur yeah okay so so but in terms of numbers what are the things that you should be taking into account 
So there's always a conversation about how do you factor in the benefits and, and any additional cash amount. So what could be other things? Because some of the stuff might not be becoming in a financial element, but it could be benefits. How do you advise people to think about that part? I think it's a lot easier to negotiate benefits, um, especially time-related ones, than it is salary. And this is where we can almost use the reverse, for example. Um, so, for example, you're offered a salary of £45,000. Um, you can say, well, you know what? Thank you so much. I, I really want to express my appreciation for the fact that you've given me a £45,000 salary. It's a lot more than I anticipated. And I feel like it's a very, very strong reflection. There is one thing, however, that I'd like to emphasize um, that I feel like is a lot more important to me money. And don't get me wrong, I'd happily take the compensation and I'm not asking to negotiate on that. At this moment in time, how I feel like you would get the best version of me and how how would you how you would receive value of someone who's worth fifty or sixty thousand pounds isn't necessarily by the compensation, but I think more of the time. You see, you know, I've got family commitments that I'd really like to keep and flexible working allow me to gain a lot more productivity than I would in my career. How open would you be to arranging where perhaps we can spend maybe twice a week at home, for example? Or how open would you be to arrangement where perhaps I leave the office slightly earlier and I can continue working my own time through the evenings? This is a wonderful way to bring in that topic. And especially when it's put into the context of I will be more productive, I will be able to give you more, you will receive more from me by this time benefit, for example. It can be a very, very, very strong way of bringing that into the workplace practice if it wasn't really common before. Yeah, but all this, you are doing it before you, this is when you're still interviewing and you've interviewed and you've been given an offer. So it's upfront before you get to work for this company. Let's move in now. Maybe you've taken the role and you're inside the company and um, maybe you discover that you're the list paid amongst your colleagues in the team that you're working for? Or you strongly believe that you've brought in some major value into the business and you believe that you need to be compensated for that. How does that salary increase conversation mm-hmm. come about and how can you, what can you take into account when you're having it? Uh, Walt Disney's brother, whose name is Roy Disney, has a wonderful saying, which I've, I've changed the word slightly, but when the value is clear, decisions are easy. And the best place to begin isn't on the day of a performance development review, which may be quarterly or once a year, but to begin now. And what I mean by now is, and I don't mean on day one, but maybe three months into the role or four months into the role. Let's pretend that we're going to leave the company and we're going to apply for a new role. Let's pretend that we're going to get laid off and we've got no option but to apply for another role. How is our new CV going to look presented for new employers? And the best way to start thinking about that is, okay, what am I doing? And more importantly, what is the tangible value that I'm bringing to the company? And what are my biggest achievements? That could be process efficiencies created um, in terms of time savings. It could be a new dashboard or Excel spreadsheet that is a lot easier to access data than before. If you're in a sales role, hitting quota, if you're in any role with targets, how well have you done against targets? How often have you exceeded targets? Have you been involved in the training and development of new staff? Have you been involved in special projects which are not related to your job, maybe involved working with other departments? 
Have you taken on any of the workload of your manager? Have you done your work and concurrently deputized for anyone who's been sick or off with maternity leave or anything else? Now, the reason to start thinking about that is twofold. Number one, if you've already done some of these things, start to list them down on your CV. Number two, and even and in fact, it might even be better if that's the case, if you haven't got any of those things, start thinking about how you can um, create opportunities to do that. And a, and a great way to do that early on is, especially if your performance reviews are only done once a year, well before your performance reviews are due, sit down with your manager and say, look, um, I'm really enjoying this role, but I'll be really honest with you. I want to get paid a lot more than I am now. Now, I appreciate that in this moment in time, it's not the right time to consider that because it's very early on. And I think I need to do more to prove it. I've got some ideas of how there's certain things that I think I can hit that will allow you, but what are your ideas? And quite often, if you come with that approach, the manager may have some ideas. And if that's the case, you've got some targets to work towards, or you can bring your own. Okay, so we've identified some development areas. Maybe I need to 10% more than target than I am now. Maybe I need to be working on the training and development of staff, for example, et cetera, et cetera. And then yeah, the most yeah. important thing is he asked and saying, okay, so we've agreed on some targets now. Maybe we can be in agreement that if we, if we get to, to X period in our performance development review, if I'm able to hit those targets, would you be in a position to have a conversation about increasing my salary or compensation by X amount? That is, in my eyes, one of the easiest and most diplomatic ways to be able to leverage and negotiate for pay rise. Yeah. And, and what has been your experience? Do those ones usually pay up or you get reminded about um, we can only afford a salary increase of 2% or whatever the number is? As I said before, it's all about value. When the value is clear, decisions are easy. If we're coming from a place of nothing except can you please give me a salary increase? There is no incentive for the manager to even consider that. Whereas if we're coming to the manager with a conversation about, okay, if I improve my productivity or performance by X amount, would you be in a position to consider it? We're not making demands, we're making requests. Would you be in a position to consider it? Any reasonable manager would have no reason um, to not entertain that because at the very least in their mind, ooh, I'm going to get a more motivated, more productive employee yeah. If there is any dismissal of that for a reason that's not considered reasonable, then it may lead one to consider, is this the culture of a company or the management that I really want to work for? And then that's another conversation about what to do about that, of course. Yeah. And, and I'm going to get very, um, I, I don't even have the right English for it. But usually what we find is that females are paid far less in most industries than their counterparts, which are males, and even uh, worse when it's black females. And what has been your experience in, in really helping um, people of color to find ways to negotiate? And have you seen any impact in, in changing the status quo? As someone of color, I tend to typically attract a lot of clients who are of color. And when it comes to specifically interview preparation, the vast majority of my clients are female, um, mainly because as you've, um, as you've said already, um, females often um, don't earn much as their male counterparts. And I would say the fundamental reason for that, and it, to a degree, there is some similarities of people of color, regardless of what they're male or not or female, is sometimes it's a feeling of, I don't feel like I deserve this. 
I don't feel like I'm worthy of this, so I should just take what I'm given. And fundamentally, that's not true um, because you have capability, you have worth, and you have value. Otherwise, you'd never have been employed in the first place. But it comes back to the first point that we made is if you don't ask, you don't get. Typically, males tend to ask, and not just once, they ask multiple times, whereas typically females do not. And that's one of the main reasons why. And especially with individuals of color across the board. And I've, I've been in organizations where I've been one of a few individuals of color, sometimes the only one in the company. Sometimes we feel lucky that we've even got the job. Sometimes we feel lucky that just being part of my organ- or this organization is a privilege. When in reality, that is the bare minimum, not the bare maximum. <laughs> uh, we've got the job. And if we are able to do the job, we deserve to be paid fairly and equitably for the value that we provide. And so we have to ask for it. And we have to be working towards it. There should not be a feeling of entitlement as if because I work here, I should simply get it. But there should be a feeling of this is the value that I provide. I am capable of earning more and I am capable of delivering the value that reflects the compensation that I should be earning as well. Yeah, it becomes a very, um, I don't want to say sensitive subject, but we always know that as as we walk in, as, as females who are in the back foot, and I think sometimes it depends on the organization, on how um, prepared are they to really employ you and keep you and, and, and make sure that you earn what you are valued at and what you, you deserve and maybe what some of your counterparts are earning. Because at the end of the day, you are delivering the same work and you might be making the same sacrifices as everybody else. So there's nothing any different. The only different thing is that you're a different gender. Completely, completely. What, what an interesting observation I've found, and I'm talking purely anecdotally from my clients rather than any research, is that females typically tend to earn less initially, but once they have actualized that they are worthy of more, they are capable of more, and once they're able to see that, and once they're able to distinguish between who they are and their job and the salary that they're earning, and it's not too intrinsically linked together, over the long run, they typically over-earn compared to their male counterparts. Amounts that they're able to negotiate are significantly higher. So let's say clients that I work with and we did some work together and they got a new job. Um, a year later, I'm not surprised to hear if they've negotiated a higher pay in their current job, for example, where the males have not. When they go for another job in 18 to 24 months' time, whether it's externally or internally, it's not surprising to hear that the difference they negotiated in salary was significantly higher than what males did. So even though typically they start with less, once they get it, they really get it, and they far outperform the male uh, male counterparts, that's for sure. And I can say with certainty, just with the number of clients that I've worked with. That's great, because I think it's the realization that you want to catch up. <laughs> yes, completely. And you know you're worth more, and you rather really than speak up and 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 not just take what you're being given anymore. Completely, which and it's quite funny, and I don't think it's a bad thing in the sense that that catch up feeling is there even when there's no need to play catch up anymore, which is great <laughs> because it means they will always, always get far more um, than what they expect, which is wonderful because especially as you start to do this regularly, you have the potential to change your life very, very quickly. Could be the difference between paying off a mortgage in um, 20 years and 10 years, for example. Yeah. It, could be the, it could be the difference in the quality of a child's education. 
uh, for example. There's this once once we're able to actualize this over the long run over a 24, 36, 48 month period, the results in terms of income and of course quality of life can be extraordinary too. Yeah, no, I, yeah, no, I, I totally agree. So tell me, how, what do you say to people? Because there's also advice that says when you're being cornered in an interview to, to give a number, maybe giving a range will be a better conversation than not giving a number at all. So basically me- mentioning that you might consider anything between let's just say the numbers that you've been using, between £40,000 and £50,000. And that's a huge range. There's like £10,000 difference. But what, what, what is your stance when it comes to that advice? I think it's better not to say it at all. And instead, throw it right back at them. So if there is becoming a bit of insistence on number, you can say, with the greatest respect, I prefer to keep that confidential. Would you mind disclosing the, the range that you're you're providing for this role? And when the range that they give, you can say, um, I think that range is satisfactory, particularly on the higher end of that range, is something that I'd definitely be open to having a conversation about. And yeah. let's keep it at that. Let's let's always keep the leverage on our side. That's not going to frustrate or uh, annoy um, anyone on the side. In fact, I think they'll gain a newfound respect for your ability to negotiate. Yeah. So, so the one thing that I'm, we, I'm finding in South Africa, and for sure, it's, I think it's different in different regions across, across the world. But in South Africa, you find that recruiters sometimes or the company might ask you for your previous payslip, which is your proof of how much you were earning in your previous role. And based on that, then there's a, a conversation that Oh yeah, the standard range maybe is between twenty percent or thirty thirty percent increase or whatever the number is on top of that, and it's something that is a pet peeve for me, because as you say, I believe that people should be um, offered what the role is offering or the value that they're bringing. What they've been earning before, I don't think really needs to be playing part in that conversation. What's your take on that? Um, please forgive me for my ignorance if I'm completely off piece, yeah. but I don't think in any country of the clients that I've worked with that I've come across so far, from what I'm aware of, I don't think there is a law, anything set in stone, where companies are limited or obliged to only pay someone 30% more than what they were previously earning. So if that is the case, and, and I don't want to talk country specific because I know it may differ, but if we keep our cards close to our chest, if we do not disclose the salary that we're earning, and if we only provide pay slips and so on and so forth after a verbal offer or even a paper offer has been made, then if the offer is changed financially by the company, that's a question of their integrity rather than anything else. And again, question always has to be, if that happens, do I really want to work for a company who does not withhold its own integrity? That's another question itself. That's how I would approach it. Yeah. And, and it's, not, it's not by law. It's actually not by law, but it's just a standard. Completely. Um, and the standards are stupid in, in a lot of regards, aren't they? Because someone saying uh, it's how it's always been or it's how it is is not a viable reason why they shouldn't pay you what you're worth, really. And as long as you stand firm, it's fine. Once we start disclosing salaries and people start benchmarking, that's a different conversation. Because once you've given what your salary is, 
then you are being benchmarked. And then the company's thinking, I'm not going to pay him um, what he's worth. I'm going to pay him what is reasonable compared to what he's on or she's on. Whereas if that is never disclosed in the entirety, that can never happen. And there's never any reason for them to say, I can only give you 20, 30% more. If you think about it, if, if they make you an offer and you accept, and then you give them a payslip, that's a question of integrity. <laughs> if they rescind yeah. your offer, nothing else. And that speaks to the culture and the morals and ethics of the company that we're engaging with, which may not be the most positive. Yeah, no, that's true. That's very true. So, so tell me, what, what, where can people find the salary benchmarks? Which, which sources are out there that are a good reference for, for salary benchmarks? Great question. I think there's two things that we can do. Uh, glassdoor.com is a wonderful tool and it's ever evolving. Um, that's the best place to begin. I think if, if you make an account, which there's no cost involved, you can have access to all of that, which is great. Another tactic that I do, not only to understand salary, but to gain leverage um, is through LinkedIn. And what I mean by that is um, between the first and final stages interview, which is usually two or three interviews, I typically reach out to employees who work for the company that I'm having an interview with and speak to them, network with them, understand the culture of the company, understand the role. Not only do I get more knowledge that the average person does not, but more importantly, if I mention an interview that I've already spoken to three or four people from your company, you're gaining a lot of leverage there especially if those people are willing to vouch for you. Um, that's another reason why they should offer you the job or you appear more valuable to someone else. Now, good question. When you're having those conversations, either over a phone call or a Zoom call, is to say, uh, listen, I've got this interview next week. Um, what sort of salary should I expect to receive? Or what sort of salary would you recommend I negotiate for? If you say to someone, what is your salary? They'll probably never just disclose it to you because that's quite personal. But if you ask a very indirect question about what you should negotiate for, how much you should expect, more often than not, they're more than happy to give a range or a rough amount. And that also gives you a benchmark. Typically, they may not always give you the highest amount, <laughs> but at least you've got a round number to work on. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's great. I think that question around, and what's, or even the question around, what's the average growing salary for this particular role? At least it gives you it gives you some numbers in your own head, and then you can decide whether those are numbers that are good for you or not. Absolutely, but the key, as as you've alluded to, is ask in a general sense. Do not make it specific to the person because that's a very personal question, which in most cultures is considered improper to ask. Yeah, no, it is a big. It is. It's always a secretive thing, <laughs> and we mustn't share, and we mustn't talk salaries, and. And that's the reason why we're in the space that we're in, where we can negotiate. Because money conversations are always um, shied upon, and we need to teach our kids differently. Absolutely. I think um, money is always a sensitive topic, and we're not meant to talk about it. But if you don't have these open and fun conversations, we're not going to have the knowledge or tools to be able to obtain the value that we want. Uh, And especially in this day and age with cost of living, energy prices and everything going through the roof. You know, these things can be the difference between uh, surviving and thriving, which is what we really want. Yeah. And, and, and what, what happens when you've been with a company, let's just say, and this has just popped into my head. You've been with a company and you've gone and interviewed somewhere else and you're coming back and then they do a counter offer. What do you think about those conversations? It's a great position to be in because we have leverage. 
and we have power. Then it really comes down to a question of why do I really want to leave? Am I leaving because of the money or am I leaving because of the culture, aggression opportunities or the leadership? The money question is an easy one to answer. If it truly is because of the money, then one is in within one's rights to accept the counteroffer. Of course, if the reason wasn't money motivated, if it was something else, then no, one, no amount of money is going to change the culture or the leadership or the progression opportunities uh, to any large degree. So it's about considering one's primary motivators for wanting to accept. Yeah. So let's say, let's say money, was, money was the reason. Um, do you have an opportunity then to actually negotiate your counteroffer? So they are saying to you, we'll give you, um, I don't know, 5,000 pounds more. And then you might come back and say, I'll take 10,000 pounds more or whatever the number is. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great position, especially if there are genuine offers. It's not, not a negative thing at all to, again, decline the first offer and say, look, it's a great offer. Um, but the expectations that I have compared to what I'm being offered is significantly higher. An offer in the 10,000 pounds range would be one in which I would have no hesitation in accepting. How do you feel about this? And negotiate. It's a great, it's a fantastic position to be in because you can negotiate the counter offer, can negotiate the offer with the existing company, and play them off each other. Obviously, to a degree. Um, uh, but I think a lot of this comes down to knowing what your number is. Mm. And, and this is the point that many people miss: is that fifty thousand dollars or seventy thousand rand or whatever. If it's just a number in your head, it's very hard to obtain. The most important part of all of this is beforehand knowing what the money means. And what I mean by that is the extra money that you are looking for. What is that going to allow you to do that you cannot currently do? If it's just a pie in the sky number because it sounds good, that's not enough power or concrete to be able to move towards it. Will that allow you to pay off your mortgage quicker? Will that allow you to go on a holiday? Will that allow you to send your kids to a better school? Will that mean that you've got more money to pay for their hobbies and things they want to do outside of school, for example? Does that mean you and your partner can go to a better um, meal restaurant or something or more frequently every month? Is there a hobby that you both want to do that you cannot currently do? Is there a renovation project in your house that you want? Will it allow you to put a deposit down for a new accommodation? Once the money has meaning, it's a lot easier to obtain. You can be a lot firmer on the yes, you could be a lot firmer on the no. Whereas if it's just everyone else is earning this much, this is what I want. It's a lot harder to get there because we are not intrinsically motivated for it. We're externally motivated. Mm, I think that's that's an amazing point that you're making. That's a very good point that you're making. Yeah, thanks, Mohammed. I think this this has been very useful even for me um, who've walked the journey of, of, of being in corporate for a while. But there are always nuances. Um, that you really want to take into account. So what are the three things that you'd like somebody to take out of this conversation today? I think number one, uh, as we spoke about, is understand that negotiation comes with leverage. And when it comes to a salary or uh, finance negotiation, um, keep your cards close to your chest for as long as possible. Number two, the best way, the most effective way to gain leverage in the negotiation process um, is by your value. Your value proposition is key. If you show your value far greater um, than an average person or the people interviewing or being in discussion, you're far more likely to get results. And number three, more importantly, the money has to have meaning, as we've just discussed. The money has to mean something to you personally, spiritually, socially, financially. It cannot just be for the sake of it. 
And those three things coupled together will allow you to achieve fantastic results. Thank you. Thank you for having taken the time. I think it's been a very interesting conversation. Um, and I'm hoping somebody will take something out of it. And where do people find you on social media? Uh, if they want to find me, there's a number of different places that they can look. Uh, the easiest one would be for my website, mkcareersolutions.com. Alternatively, if they want to reach out to me personally, they are more than welcome to find me on my LinkedIn, which is Mohammed, M-O-H-A-M-M-E-D, K-A-S-U-J-E-E. And um, I'm, I'm always open to a conversation about anything you've discussed or beyond. Thank you. Thanks, Mohammed. So for anybody who's been listening to us, um, thank you for taking the time. Please feel free to share any comments um, and, and share with anybody else that you think might um, take something out of this conversation. Up until next time, um, I'm not sure who I'll be bringing next, but I bet you it will be somebody who will have a very interesting topic for us to have a conversation on. Thanks, guys, and I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Change Conversations. If you enjoyed our show and you would like to help support the podcast, please share it with others and kindly post about it on your social media platforms. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram and YouTube at Change Conversations with Mbume. I am Mbume Ngubedaga signing out and I will see you again next week.